Hi, everyone. We thank you for joining us for today's Safety and Health webinar. want to let you know we're going to be getting underway in about a minute as we let some more folks uh, shuttle into the live room. But you are in the right place, and we'll be going uh, in about a minute from now. Hello again, everyone. Just want to let you know as you file in, you are in the right place. We'll get our presentation going in about 30 seconds. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, collaborative efforts to manage and destigmatize substance use disorders and mental health among the workforce, sponsored by Heritage Health Solutions. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and we'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start a presentation, but first, let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own, and may not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not necessarily mean that the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. Today's webcast is archived, so you can access it after the live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, we'll go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Hamilton Baden, Jenny Burke, and David Whitesock. Hamilton is CEO of Heritage Solutions. He brings almost three decades of experience in the healthcare industry and has used a passion for creating innovative solutions to complex problems to expand the behavioral health services that Heritage offers. Jenny is vice president of the impairment practice at the National Safety Council. She advances the NSC mission of eliminating preventable deaths in our lifetime by leading NSC advocacy initiatives, including those involving prescription drug overdose and fatigue, while overseeing development of educational programs. David serves as founder and CEO of Commonly Well and is the architect of the Recovery Capital Index, which he developed while designing new approaches to peer coaching. He is a regular speaker and advocate for addiction and mental health. Hamilton, Jenny, and David, we thank you for being here today. Whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thanks, Kevin. Um, first and foremost, thanks to everyone for joining us. We've got a, a large group on uh, the webinar today, so we appreciate your time. Um, again, this presentation is titled Collaborative Efforts to Manage and Destigmatize SUDs and Behavioral Health Among the Workforce. I think most of you will agree, an extremely important topic uh, given what has transpired over the last few years. So let's get started and talk about session objectives. What are we here to learn today? What are, we, what are we trying to accomplish? So number one, we're going to define addiction and substance misuse. We want to talk about how to recognize impairment behaviors in the workplace, which is a, a very interesting thing to look at. Um, understand the impact to both employers and employees. And I think this is really important. A lot of time we always talk about what's the impact to the employer um, what we want to do is talk about that, also how this affects the employees, and then what to do about it. Um, and we'll do that by sharing best practices and resources. So Kevin gave a um, really high-level introduction, which was way too kind. Um, my name is Hamilton Baden. I'm the CEO of Heritage Cares. Been in healthcare for about 30 years. Um, really, my professional career is, is not that important. What I think is interesting about my life um, from a personal standpoint is for the first 21 years of my career, I struggled with a lot of different what I would call behavioral health issues. Uh, as you can probably tell uh, by the way I talk, hyperactivity, um, 
obsessive compulsive disorder, ADD, stress, anxiety. Um, and what was interesting about that is I saw a lot of healthcare providers. I, I saw a counselor every week. I saw a psychiatrist once a month. I was on a lot of different medications trying to manage the symptoms of this. And people that knew me, um, you know, probably thought, wow, this is just a really stressed out executive. And if you, if you looked in the data, that's what you would see as well. Turns out I was an alcoholic. I got sober nine and a half years ago, changed my life for the better. But what's interesting about that story is all of those health claims that were going through uh, the payer and also my company was responsible for, those seemed to fall off over time. Um, and I was left in a much better place as was my organization. So uh, you'll hear a lot of my personal passion come through this um, as, we, as we go on through the webinar. Jenny? Hi, my name is Jenny Burke. I am the uh, Vice President of the Impairment Practice at the National Safety Council. I've been leading uh, initiatives focusing on various forms of impairment for the last six years uh, at the council, focusing on things like the opioid epidemic, fatigue, um, pretty much any, anything that might keep you from, from focusing and being safe on the job. And so um, we're very passionate about this issue at the council. We've been working on building materials for employers for the last several years and are really excited to bring this to you this afternoon. David? Thanks, Jenny and Hamilton. And thank you, Kevin. Yeah, Kevin provided a nice overview of sort of who I am and what I do, but I'll uh, follow Hamilton's lead and just say, you know, I'm also somebody who has uh, survived addiction. I've uh, been in remission now for about 16 or 17 years, but the underlying issues for me uh, were anxiety and depression. And uh, I experienced those mightily during a 10 year uh, career as a radio broadcaster. Um, my employer at the time, and the reason why I'm so passionate about the conversation that we're having here today is my employer just did not know what to do. Uh, I was in a position that helped really run that uh, operation and they just, they, they had no, no way to, to handle me. And so uh, over the course of, of my career in both broadcasting and then later in designing solutions for actually helping people overcome uh, substance use and mental health issues, uh, the one thing that we kept coming back to was how do we know that somebody is really getting better and how can, how can we understand that at scale? And so uh, we'll get a chance to talk about that in terms of measuring resilience of your employees and for your organization, and uh, talk about uh, the ways that we can sort of apply that in real time uh, to, to, to really improve uh, your workforce. So Hamilton, we'll let you get it going. Awesome, thanks David, and thanks Jenny for um, those uh, backgrounds. Um, so what, what we're gonna start is, is talk about addiction and substance misuse. and and. You know, what is the problem? Uh, how big of a problem is this? I'm not gonna go through every one of these statistics. There's a couple though that we wanna, wanna touch base on. Number one, SAMHSA, who is the governing body of substance abuse in this country, says that around 46% of Americans, yes, you heard that right, around 46% of Americans either struggle with substance abuse or substance use disorder, or they have a close loved one that struggles. And the close loved one is something we wanted to take a, deep, take a deeper look at. If you look in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, 18%. Um, uh, before the pandemic, around three and a half years ago, they did a Gallup poll. And what it showed was 18% of American workers in this country go home to addiction. So they're going home to a parent, a spouse, or a child that's struggling with addiction. The scariest thing is that they've recently done that Gallup poll again. It's now up to 26%. So a quarter of your workforce is going home to addiction. Now, let's just say you're a CEO or an owner of a business where you really don't care about people, but you care about the bottom line. You care about cost. What's really amazing about that number is the Snyder Health Institute did a study and found that family members of addicts are five times more likely to be hospitalized in a given year. So we're driving up healthcare costs. You have no idea why. There's no code that says I'm married to an alcoholic or my son is a heroin addict. And it's, it's really, when you talk about the family, it's diabolical. You're, it's, it's really unlike, and I'm not putting down any other diseases and saying they're not bad, but it's so different because you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're always wondering, is my loved one actually doing what they're supposed to do? And it becomes a safety issue. 
People that are dealing with this are not 100% present at work. It is difficult, it is hard, and they are not gonna come forward to HR and raise their hand and say, I have a son at home that's dealing with heroin. Now, the, the bright side of this and the good side is, I believe, and I think we all believe that if we focus on the family, there it's some low hanging fruit. We can do some uh, phenomenal things from that standpoint. Um, just by caring and just like putting some, some programs in place to help them. So addiction versus substance misuse, um, I'm gonna sum this up pretty easily. When we talk about cancer, we've got four stages, stage one, two, three, and four. Think about addiction in very much the same sense. Substance misuse is the beginning stages. As it continues to progress, it reaches the levels of addiction, which is characterized as a brain disorder. The brain actually changes reward system. When you look at it on a continuum, kind of looks like this. People that have never used are not using currently. Non-risky use turns into risky use, turns into full-blown addiction. What addiction is not, and this is really interesting. I don't know why the first little bullet point didn't show up there. There it is. Uh, it is not a moral weakness. It is not a character flaw. It is not a personal choice. It is not a criminal offense and it is not an issue for other people. People that don't understand this have a really hard time. And I'll just tell you my personal story. My wife thought that I could not control my drinking because I didn't love her enough, because I didn't love her enough. And that's not her fault. She didn't understand it. Um, but when it gets to the point where it's full-blown addiction, it is not a personal choice. Addiction affects not only the individual, it affects families and it affects friends. This eats away from families on the inside. The family needs support. Friends very often turn the other way because they just can't deal with it anymore. So it is not a singular disease, it affects everyone. So how do we recognize these behaviors in the workplace? Now this is gonna, these next two slides are gonna be very interesting because we kind of talk out of both sides of our mouth, to be very honest. Um, you know, there's these expectations and things that we see in the movies um, where you can tell that someone is an alcoholic or you can tell someone is struggling with drug addiction. Um, so the expectation is you'll see big physical changes, big emotional changes. In reality, a lot of times you don't see anything. Um, you know, I think David's okay with me saying this. You know, he was very much like me. I was a functional alcoholic. I was a successful business person. When I got sober, I cannot tell you how many people came to me and said, you're not an alcoholic. We had no idea. Like it's, it's really interesting how we look at it. Now on the other side, there are certain things that we can see. And as managers, as people working in businesses, trying to be safe in the operation, we do want to be on the lookout for things because sometimes you can see it. Um, when you think about it from a physical standpoint, if you see a rapid shift in a physical appearance, sometimes you see tremors, unsteady gait, delayed reaction time, obviously an odor of alcohol or drugs. There's also signs of cognitive impairment, um, people being irritable, memory loss, um, abnormal behavior, inappropriate verbal or emotional responses. And then how does this affect performance? Um, you have people that frequently call out slick, sick, they're tardy a lot of times, they make errors in judgment. Um, obviously, if you're doing drug screening and you get positive tests and things of that nature. So um, again, it's not always what it seems, but if it does seem that way, you wanna dig a little bit deeper. These are some statistics and most of the time when we're giving presentations, it, it doesn't behoove you to read the slides. I'm gonna do that in this case because these are so eye-opening that I think we need to really concentrate on them. Last year, so let me take a step back. 20 years ago, 9,000 people in the United States died of a drug overdose. Last year, 105,000 people died. Now, I wish we were in a live room because I would stop and, and ask uh, a little trivia question and I'll do it, but no one's gonna be able to respond to me. There's a very interesting phenomena here. What do we have now to fight this that we didn't have 20 years ago? I'll pause for a second, just think about that. What do we have now to stop overdose deaths that we didn't have 20 years ago? It's called Narcan. Narcan brings back people to life. We did not have that 20 years ago. If you just 
looked at the number of people that were brought back to life with Narcan last year and add that to the 105,000 number, you would have close to a half a million people that died in the United States from a drug overdose um, last year. Look on the right, the odds of dying from an opioid overdose are now greater than those dying in a car crash. You heard that correctly. 75% of workplaces are impacted by opioid abuse. And that's from a National Safety Council survey. And this is the really interesting one to me. 75% of people with a substance use disorder are in the workforce. It is not the person living underneath the bridge that's homeless, that doesn't have a job. Yes, it absolutely affects that, those individuals. But the majority of people that struggle with this are in the workforce. They're just like me and you. And so from an employer standpoint, it's affecting employers. It's driving up healthcare claims. There's risk in the employer. There's safety issues. It's also affecting uh, employees, the people that you're working right next to. And then the final slide for me, and I'm gonna turn it over to Jenny to really talk about the impact is this one. And I'll be very blunt with everybody. This statistic really changed my life. Um, when I got into this field and really started digging in and trying to make a difference, I had no idea that only 10% of people that are struggling reach out for help. And this includes the family. So what we've, what we've shown you is there's a, an enormous amount of people in this country that are in our businesses that are struggling with substance misuse and behavioral health, but only a tiny sliver of people are going to get help. There are great solutions for the 10% of people that raise their hand and call the EAP or walk down the hall to HR and say, I think I've got a problem, I need help. But really what we should be focused on is how do we help the 90% of people that are never gonna do that? And there is a way to help them. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Jenny, I'm gonna turn it over to you to talk about the impact. Yes, thank you, Hamilton, appreciate it. Um, and you know, as Hamilton mentioned, it's, it's really, we've got 75% of people who have a substance use disorder are in the workforce. So employers absolutely have a role to play in supporting those employees and raising that number up from the 10% of people who um, actually do get help and increasing that number because they the, the way that they get help is through their employers and through the benefits coverage. And so we wanna make sure that employees have the coverage that they need to get the help that they need. So I want to talk a little bit here about um, what happens when you have an employee who's struggling. So why is this important for a workplace to really dig in and support their employees? Well, when we look at the slide, we see that about um, the percentage of employees who've lost about 10% of their hours of productivity per week and all the different things that can impact that. So things like their mental health, if they're struggling with, with mental distress or, um, or untreated mental illness or um, any sort of social factor, things like COVID, which have kept us from focusing on our work and on our jobs um, and really take that attention away from um, when, we're, when we're engaged with our work. Um, we know that over half of the workers actually, sorry, if you can go back to that side really fast, about half of the workers say that mental health has really affected them since COVID began. Um, I would argue that that number has probably been the same, but we're actually recognizing it more often. We're actually admitting that this is an issue now. So a silver lining of COVID is really that we're having this discussion uh, in a much more robust way than we've had previously. So you want to go ahead and go forward, please. At the National Safety Council, we've done um, we've built several cost calculators to really help employers see how is this affecting the workplace and what is that ROI that they might see uh, or that they would see if they invest in helping their employees deal with um, substance misuse and behavioral health issues. Uh, this slide here you'll see is taken from our mental health cost calculator and just a few uh, data points that we wanted to share with you today. We know that every mentally distressed worker, so that's, you know, again, the, the stress, the um, it may be mental illness, it may be untreated mental illness, but everyone who is not treated experiencing some sort of mental distress worker can cost an employer over $4,700 a year in days of work missed. And so that means that, you know, they're calling out sick more often, they're taking time away. In addition to that, we see that mentally distressed workers can cost, um, cost employers over $2,800 more in healthcare services per year, because regardless of whether or not um, they may be seeking health treatment for this issue, your mental health has an impact on your physical health. And so you're seeing 
more uh, spend expenditures in the healthcare realm as well. Um, and then uh, the, the final statistic here is really around turnover. So it costs about an employer about $5,700 a year in costs related to turnover because workers who are under mental distress are likely to change jobs significantly more often, be less loyal to the companies that they work for when they're having, um, when they're experiencing this mental distress for an extended period of time. So on average, that's about 15,000 a year um, of extra money. Um, we know that mentally distressed workers are about three and a half times more likely to have a substance use disorder than their peers. So that problem that they're experiencing really um, is compiled into, you know, other problems build off of that and it impacts uh, a lot of other things. And so we see that here with the substance use disorder piece. But the good news really is that for every dollar invested in mental health treatment, an employer is going to basically see a $4 return in improved health and productivity. So you're going to have workers who are more engaged on the job, they're going to be costing less in healthcare, and they're going to stay at that employer longer. Employers who support their employees will see much more uh, loyal um, employees and uh, experience significantly more retention. Um, a little few, few other data points from the cost calculator that I wanted to share. Um, is an annual average cost of an employee with an untreated substance use disorder has risen by about 30%. That is still a pre-COVID number. So those numbers are coming from 2018, 2019. So as we think about how costs have risen over, especially even things like the last six months, we're looking at significant cost increases in, in um, what employers are needing to spend to support their employees. We know that employers spend an average of about $8,800 a year um, on their employees with an untreated substance use disorder. And um, the other point though that I, I'd like to make is that an employee who recovers from a substance use disorder and stays at their employer um, will actually save that company over $8,500 a year. In addition to that statistic, we've also found that employers, employees in recovery stay at their employers longer and they also actually use less sick time than your average employee by about one day a year. But that kind of savings can um, significantly you know, increase over time. And so it's definitely worth the investment and something I wanted to make sure we shared with you today. Um, and really what we've found over the years that we've been digging into this at the National Safety Council is that a best practice is really taking a comprehensive approach to helping your employees and to putting supports in place um, in several different areas. Um, the, the areas that we, that we want employers to focus on are really around your workplace drug policies. We have a, lo a lot of policies um, that we have in our, our toolkits that um, sample policies that employers can use. These are free and available on our website uh, to really help employers see what are all the different ways you can support your employees and that you should be supporting your employees through uh, policies. Uh, the next thing that, that needs to happen is employee education. So just taking the time to educate your employees and have conversations around this. What does this mean? Um, and then, you know, how do you define mental distress? Like, what are all of these things and helping employees identify when they may need uh, to get help for an issue? And then really looking at how do you measure engagement and what outcomes do you want to see as a result of the programming that you're building? Uh, and then you'll hear from David in a few moments about that. And then finally, making sure that you update your policies and your programs annually. Uh, the data changes as we look at different um, areas where substance misuse or behavioral health, um, different issues can change over time. And so really making sure that the policies that you have um, are appropriate for um, the outcomes that you're seeing in your workplace. And then um, making sure that, that, that all of those are in line with each other is um, of the utmost importance. Um, to get back to that policy piece, because this is really one where um, it is just absolutely crucial that employers um, address policies, is making sure that, that you have a workplace substance use policy um, that supports maintaining a substance-free work environment. So this means you need policies like a drug testing policy, that you have um, employee programs, and that you can really work towards mitigating the risk of having drug use happening in the workplace at all. And so making sure that you have policies around that. We wanna make sure that we're reviewing workplace policies, um, any programs that we have, that you're not only at the new hire level, but then 
reviewing them annually, at least at a minimum with your employees, having conversations around this. What do these policies mean? How can employers and employees take advantage of these policies and get what they need out of them? So, and then as part of that conversation, talking to your employees about substance misuse, what are the symptoms of drug misuse? What is that Um, What are the effects on performance? How can that impact your safety in the workplace? Um, And really making sure that you're having conversations. Um, It's also important to think about, it's not necessarily only illicit drugs. Um, Just even including information on the use of medications and your employee's responsibility to be fit for duty. So for example, you may have an employee who's suffering significantly from allergies in the spring and they're taking a lot of Benadryl to get through their allergies. Well, that can also impact the safety in the workplace and and can cause an impairment in the same way that something else might. So just having those conversations and really keeping the safety of your employees um, at the foremost focus is very important. And as far as employee education goes, um, there's a lot of different routes to really engage in employee education. You're hearing about some of those today. Um, But the important thing is, you know, there are available uh, ways for you to support employees. So mostly through things like your employee assistance programs, there may be health and wellness programs, your healthcare coverage may provide some more employee education, but making sure not only that you're providing that education, but that you're talking about the available education and requiring some of that education as part of your employer-employee relationship. And by having those conversations and motivating your employees to support the policies and to take advantage of any additional programs, it really creates that that joint approach between employees and and the employer um, to see some some significant success there. Uh, You can communicate policies and education through things like lunch and learns, through your team meetings, through webinars, um, you know, through uh, newsletters that may come out. The important thing is to just repeat simple messages about these um, educational opportunities, repeat them often and in a variety of ways. What, when someone might see something in a newsletter, another employee might see something um, or hear something in a safety talk. And so really approaching it in all of those different ways becomes incredibly important. And then requiring some mandatory education for all your employees in the same way that we would take maybe an IT training on how to make sure that you're being safe with your computer, you also want to make sure that your employees are being safe with themselves and others. And so uh, requiring that mandatory education is also important. And then around updating your policies and programs, you need to make sure that when you look at your EAP, that you're identifying any gaps that might exist. We do have some information in our, um, in our Opioids at Work Employer Toolkit that talks about this specifically. Um, what makes a good EAP? you wanna make sure that your EAP is providing what your workforce needs. And David's gonna talk to you about what are those outcomes that you're really looking for and how do you then make sure that you are achieving those. This is one of those ways that you do that by really digging into what your employees are are utilizing in their EAP, understanding where there may be some issues and what you actually need out of your EAP. You need to be able to seek out alternative programs and solutions based on what you know about your employees to make sure that they're getting the help that they need, and then continually review and update your policies. Again, as I mentioned earlier, um, on the the strategies and programs that are promoting your drug-free workplace. So just making sure that all the policies that you have are reflecting the needs of your current work population. And because that is a changing group of people, you need to make sure that the policies are flexible as well. Awesome. Thank you, Jenny, for that update. Um, The last uh, bullet point you mentioned was on engagement and outcomes. And based on the great work uh, that David has done, um, we're going to invite him to jump in and and dig into this one a little bit further. So David, take it away. Thanks, Hamilton. And thanks, Jenny. So we'll try not to get too nerdy over the next uh, 10, 15 minutes, but Uh, we're going to get into some data and talk a bit about how we can look at various information and sort of bring together what Jenny and Hamilton were both talking about in terms of when we start to make policy changes, when we start to look at what those policy changes mean. And then as we're looking at the behaviors and engaging uh, the workforce, what do we focus on? And you can see that there are some uh, elements like, you know, are we uh, creating some counts in the organization? What are we counting? 
that make a difference? Who is engaging in care management plans? Who is particularly um, not relapsing, if that's a particular metric that we want to follow? Who's adhering to various engagement plans? Uh, if you know there are certain uh, interventions that are offered in the workplace, like education, or what you might hear uh, a little bit later uh, with uh, the, the pilot program that we're putting together, Who's engaging in that? And then as people are engaging, then we need to sort of get to the intangibles. What are the social and the behavioral and the environmental factors that we're starting to see and change amongst uh, your employees and the workplace over time? So that's what we're going to kind of focus on here. Uh, but what we want to do is give you a chance to actually see what this looks like in real time. So if you text the uh, three letters NSC, and I know when you put that into your messaging application, either the iMessage or the Android messaging app, um, just be uh, cautious of the autocorrect. So type NSC to 833-269-5937, or just scan that QR code. You're gonna get a, a message and get a chance to take uh, the Resilience Capital Index, our short version of that. It'll kind of give you an idea of what things we look at when we sort of measure these resilience indicators and also get a couple of messages over the next day or two uh, to see sort of what is the, the content, what are the materials that we talk about when we start to engage employees in the workplace. So give that a try. Uh, what you input to that will uh, be confidential, be anonymous, and uh, we're just using it for demonstration purposes here. So let's talk about resilience and, and why we're going to talk about resilience and why that is really important to think about. Hamilton described to you sort of the stages that individuals go through when they're experiencing a substance use issue or problem. Now, both him or I or anyone who has experienced this, we could probably tell you that underlying our drinking or drug problems were a whole host of other factors. Maybe it was the stress at work. Uh, both Hamilton and I worked in high octane environments. I was in media and broadcasting and the culture was go, 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 24 seven, always on. And in an environment like that, that creates stress. With that stress comes an, a need for outlet. And you turn to alcohol or drugs in various cultures and most places around the United States, alcohol is a pretty easy place to go to, to get relief. So when we talk about resilience, what we're getting at is what are those things that impact our ability to take on an event? So let's just say um, you lose a family member. Uh, how quickly are you able to return back to some level of stability? Obviously going through the stages of grief and those various things, but resilience is our ability to return back to some level of stability. Well, how do we measure that? What are those things? And we put this into the context of substance use or misuse or stress or other factors that could impede performance or you know, work output. Uh, if we're slow to return to a state of well-being, that resilience factor, uh, sometimes it's not just the things that we see as we talked about earlier. These could be things in our environment like if you can go to the next uh, slide, Hamilton. These things could be what we call personal, social, and cultural capital. They could be things like, do I feel like I'm educated enough to be successful in my life and in the work? And if I don't feel like I can be successful and maybe an event happens like we just experienced, COVID-19, uh, and now all of a sudden that comes along, maybe you get furloughed or you get laid off and you feel less than, your ability to bounce back uh, is, is hindered. We can talk about relationships. So social capital is really the assets, our relationship assets. Do I have good friends? Do I have a strong family network? Do I have people I can lean on or that people that lean on me? When we think about cultural capital, now we get a little bit more esoteric, a little bit more uh, uh, into sort of who we are, what we are. And you put all of these things together and that's sort of the, the, the end formula for this idea of being uh, resilient. And the more of this that you build up over time, when an event comes along, you have all of these various elements uh, to, to, to lean into. Now, when we get into the workplace, if you wanna to go to the next one, Hamilton, when we get into the workplace, what we wanna be able to do is we wanna see those underlying elements that can lead to 
uh, impairment issues that can lead to substance misissues, could lead to other behavioral challenges that then impact uh, output and, 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 and productivity in the workplace. So what you all just did, uh, those of you that, that did the, the Resilience Capital Index, those short 10 items, if you did it while I was talking and weren't paying attention to me, that's fine. You can go back and listen to the recording of this. Um, but when you did that, what we got was a quick pulse of you as an individual. Now there are approximately 70 people on this webinar right now. When we look at that, we can then look at that data and see it as a group. And we can start to see, are there some trends? Are there some things within the group that might be strong or might be a deficit? And if there are things that are a particular deficit amongst this group of 70 people, uh, now as leaders, as those that are really concerned about the people who uh, make up our workforce, we can now start to look to the tools that National Safety Council has or that the, the workplace might have and really target those areas. We can kind of get ahead of the, the trend as it's happening. And we can obviously look at that at a, at a much bigger level because all of you reside in the wider community and we could probably even see maybe there are some uh, trends within a particular zip code or a particular geography. Some of your businesses are scattered across the country. You've got different locations. Maybe there are other external factors that are playing on to your workforce that you would never see inside the four walls of, of a business. And so this is the way that we can start to look at that information uh, as organizational leaders. And, and, and we can see these trends, all right? Here, so here's an organization. Uh, this is a lot of different organizations and people coming together. And we're looking at it, you know, in a sort of a time series view, month to month over the course of, of almost uh, two years here. And you can start to see, this is, this is RCI happening during COVID. And you can kind of see that first drop. So individuals are reporting what's happening in their environment just as the pandemic was starting to happen back in March and April of 2020. And you kind of see things sort of return back to normal, but you know, things got shaky again. So we can actually start to see this in real time and you can be more prepared. This is what would an individual look like. So you could see one person longitudinally, what is their experience? This is the same time frame, um, And now we're seeing an individual and, and how maybe that might work. Now, if you've got certain people within your organization who are really clued into uh, navigating and helping people get to various services and resources, now you can be right there at the tip of it and kind of help individuals before things get too bad because that's where the real cost drivers are. You know, I go back to Hamilton's story and maybe even mine. If we just kick these things down the road and, and be like, oh, he'll just get better. Um, it's not bad yet. It's not bad enough yet. He's not an alcoholic. He doesn't need to go to rehab. It's not bad enough yet. If we keep waiting for that, then it'll get really bad. And then it's much costlier, harder to get uh, back and bounce back from a situation like that. But now we have a question of, you know, how do we do this, right? Uh, and, and one of the, the tricks that we have, you know, had to come overcome over the years is to get this self-report data. And a lot of you probably do this in your organization. You're using pulse polling. Maybe you're using a portal and pushing out questions and really trying to learn from your employees. We're, we're using some of those same concepts. We've learned like you just experienced that through text messaging. We can do two things kind of at once. Uh, we can engage people with more meaningful communication, much more timely and relevant communication. It could be to the employees. It could be to various individuals or family members and what those messages might be and what they might need to be at a particular time. And as we build up that level of engagement, build up that trust of communication, uh, when it's time to ask Jenny to respond to the Resilience Capital Index, because we wanna know what the pulse of the company is, um, she's gonna be more likely to, to do that. And the input back from Jenny is gonna be much more meaningful because we're gonna have this feedback loop of information that's gonna come back to her and see on an individual level, how is she? And then the company will say, well, this is how everybody is together. And this is the thing that we're going to do to improve it. Or if we do make those changes and we do use some of these tools, what has been the improvement or impact over time? And that's something that we can celebrate as a company as we start to see you know, the multiple bottom, the, the, the double bottom line improve, the one that is the dollar bottom line, but also the human capital 
uh, an impact bottom line. Um, next one, Hamilton. Yeah, David, that, that is awesome. Um, and we appreciate you taking the time to take us through that. Um, what and, and David will come back at the end and, and be here to answer questions uh, about everything we talked about, including the tool. Um, what I really like about the RCI is what David really hit on at the end. A lot of times as organizations, we put these things in place to make our employees better. But then we don't know if they really work or not. Do people use them? Are they working? Are they making a change? And what the RCI allows us to do is to really measure that and be able to prove out the change that is happening. Um, so we've talked about what is substance uh, misuse? What is addiction? We've talked about how this affects employers and what to do about it from an employer standpoint. We've talked about how to measure some of those things. And now we wanna finish up by saying, okay, now how do we help employees? And really when we look at things like this, there's best practices, um, digital tools, educating individuals. Um, some of the things that I've learned over time, again, very different than what you see in the movies. Um, believe it or not, around half of the people that get better from substance misuse, which is the earlier stages of addiction, actually do it on their own. They get educated. They start to realize that this is not only an issue with drinking or using drugs, it's becoming a healthcare issue. They start to course correct. Now I'm gonna pause there for a second. You heard me correctly. Not everyone has to go to inpatient treatment. As a matter of fact, only about 13% of people that recover from substance abuse actually go to inpatient treatment. It's just, it's, it's not the way we say it in the movies. And Jenny hit on something really interesting. We believe you should do annual training. Think about it. Most companies in this country do annual training on two things, violence in the workplace and sexual harassment. And the primary reason they do that is for risk mitigation. We believe you should also be training around this topic, not only because it's the right thing to do, it will help employees get to learn and start to course correct, but also from a risk mitigation strategy. Care management platforms. These are simply platforms that connect people that need it to additional care. Instead of them having to raise their hand and walk to HR, instead of having to pick up the phone and call an EAP, and then the EAP gives them the name of three counselors and they've got to do a lot of work. What I know personally is, is if you put any barrier in front of an individual that is struggling with this, they will take that barrier and they will run. We have to make it very easily for people that need help in a confidential manner to get connected immediately to that care. High touch personal support, concierge, if you will. Um, you know, I always say if, if I got diagnosed today with cancer, whether it was stage one or stage four, everybody and their brother who loved me, whether it was in my uh, employer, whether it was my family or friends, would jump over everything that they could to get to me, to help me, to get me to the right doctor, the right oncologist, the right hospital, the right drug, anything that I needed. It doesn't matter what stage it was. But when it comes to this, what we typically do is if it's stage one, two, or three, we tell the person, when you're ready to quit forever, come forward and we'll help you. And it's up to you to do the work. We don't treat it the same way. And so we believe we need high touch personal support and extremely important to us, we believe we have to support the family. There's a lot of reasons for this. If you remember at the beginning of the talk, we said about a quarter of the workforce is going home to this. And those individuals are five times more likely to be hospitalized in a given year. The stress, the anxiety, not being safe at work. If we can focus on the family as well as the individual, we can make a difference. The other thing that we can do is we can change the behavior of the individual. We know is if a family member understands and supports the loved one, that loved one has a million times better chance to make it out of this and to the other side. So family support is very important. So what we've done, uh, the three of us, the three organizations, Commonly Well, National Safety Council and Heritage Cares have put together a program combining all of the beliefs and different tools from each of us into one program. Um, this is called Heritage Cares, and it is a program where we go into the employer, um, we engage and we educate. Uh, we give a very quick way for people that need that additional support to get to that support. 
And then we wrap around peer coaching or peer support. That's this personal high touch concierge service that goes along with this. Um, the education is delivered through a learning management system that we've created called U-Turn. U-Turn, um, the best way to describe it, in my opinion, is to think Netflix for behavioral health. I'm sure everyone on this presentation checked out Netflix uh, over the last three years because of the pandemic. Think about it that way. It is the largest collection of counselor-led evidence-based videos on the planet, all designed around addressing behavioral health. And what makes U-Turn a little bit different is number one, it's completely anonymous and confidential. So the employer, the employee, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year with no stigma whatsoever can go on and start to learn, get hope, get advice without the fear of stigma. The second thing about U-Turn that's very different is about 50% of the content is built specifically for the family. We knew we had to educate the family as well as the individual. And then finally, the thing that makes U-Turn different is the vibe of the platform. For so long in this country, we've approached addiction in a negative manner. We've said, David, you're an alcoholic, you're an addict, you have to quit. That's not very inviting. That's not very unwelcoming. To be called names, to be labeled, to basically be told this is the way it has to be done and you have to get on board is not something that makes people very open. So when we built U-Turn, we built it with this very open feeling. We don't label people. We don't call people alcoholics and addicts. We use a lot of evidence-based principles like motivational interviewing and positive psychology. We talk about this as a healthcare issue. So there's lots of educational modules on things like stress and anxiety and positive psychology, really getting individuals to be able to go on to learn, to course correct if they can and move on that journey. And then those that this is the start of their journey, we're able to connect them to peer coaching if it's needed or if it's requested. And what's really interesting, and I'll finish up on here and then I'll turn it over to Jenny to talk about um, some pilot opportunities. We believe uh, that peer coaching in the way that we do it as an organization is really a paradigm shift. And let me explain that very quickly. For the last 70 years um, in this country, the way that we've treated substance misuse or addiction is we've always put the onus on the individual. We've said, Hamilton, you have a problem. You have to raise your hand and be willing. You have to own it. We'll, get, we'll help you. We'll give you the tools, but it is up to you to stay engaged. It's up to you to do the work. And if you choose not to do that, that's okay. We're going to wait for you until you get in enough pain that you're willing to do the work. That's how we treat this. That's look it up, check with anybody. That's how we've done it for 70 years. And we believe that we need to have a team of people that are professionals that have lived through this, that are trained. It is their job to be the responsible for the engagement. What we've learned is, is that most people that are living with these things, depression, anxiety, substance misuse, substance abuse, they want to get better. They don't want to be living this life. But the thought of raising their hand and having to leave their family or their job for six weeks and never drink again or never use a drug again is daunting. It's scary. Um, it, they don't think it's possible. I mean, if you came to me 12 years ago and told me that was my option, I would have freaked out. I did not think it was humanly possible for me to quit, quit drinking forever. So we approach it in a different manner. We wrap our hands around people. We tell them we love them. We don't call them alcoholics and addicts. We get them started on this journey. And it's up to the peer to really keep that person motivated and moving forward. Um, and so that's what we're doing. Jenny, I'm going to turn it over to you and kind of talk about opportunities for pilots. And uh, then we'll be happy to answer any questions. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Hamilton. And so, um, you know, Hamilton spent a long time talking to you about um, all of the different things that Heritage Cares offers. And um, you've heard us this morning talk about the importance of those things and the importance of supporting your employees, uh, the importance of having a structure within your organization that can support your employees. So things like that policy development, that um, making sure that you have the right education. And then David spoke with you about that employee engagement and measuring your outcomes. And what we believe is that if you can have that comprehensive approach and really bring these three different things together, um, that you will be able to support your employees your, and 
be the employer that you really want to be and, and really, really support um, uh, those people who need, who need your help. Um, we have uh, put our programs together in a way that we can educate on the policy development on the employer side, um, provide resources on the employee side, and then measure that engagement and outcomes. Um, if you are interested in finding out more information, we would love for you to reach out. Hamilton's got a slide that has all of our information on it. And uh, we are looking for organizations to pilot this with potentially so that we can um, put this program together in that comprehensive way and really make sure that we are addressing all of the needs within an organization for employers and employees alike. And then really understanding what that impact looks like when we measure the outcomes at the end. So we would love to, um, to hear from you about that and uh, definitely please feel free to reach out. Uh, with that, I'd like to turn it back to Kevin, who is our moderator today to um, uh, provide any questions that you might have. I do see uh, that we might have some, so um, please feel free to answer any or ask any questions that you might have at this point. Well, excellent. Great job to Hamilton, Jenny and David. We really thank you for your insights and expertise. Before we do start the Q&A, just want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it helps us improve our future webcast. Uh, as Jenny mentioned, there are some questions in the queue, but just as a reminder, if you wish to ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. And with that, we will get going. Um, first, looks like there's some intrigue in the in the program and the opportunity you were mentioning. Uh, this question asks, what does it mean when it says uh, families are included? Um, I'll take that one. This is Hamilton. Um, what we mean by that is typically when we go into an organization, we look at the cost of this by the number of employees. Um, so let's say an organization has a thousand employees. That's what we base uh, the fee off of but we welcome all family members into the program as well. And we never charge for a family member. So we consider the individual and the family a unit. Um, so, and, and we never do eligibility files because it, it's our opinion. We wanna help as many people as we can. So if, um, if it's a cousin, if it's a stepbrother, if it's a stepdaughter, whatever it may be, we want those people to be included. So it just means that we include the family and we will do everything we can to engage the family. What most people don't realize is if you talk to a treatment center, um, probably about 75% of the inquiries and the phone calls that they get to that treatment center actually come from the family. It's the mother of a, of a son that's struggling. It's the spouse that is you know, beyond themselves and can't figure out what's going on and how to help them. And so whether it's the family that comes first or the individual that comes first, we do our best to bring everyone in and they're all considered part of the unit. Next one asks, what does the implementation and the onboarding of this program look like? Um, Jenny, you want me to take that one? I mean, typically what we do is we go in, first of all, the RCI is embedded in this program. So we're gonna use the RCI to measure outcomes from the very beginning. We wanna get a baseline, how people are doing, how they're feeling, what their social, what, all of those things that David's uh, incredible tool measures. And then we will continue to do that through the program so we can actually see the difference that the program is making. We go into the organization, we entirely engage, we market to employees, we set up annual training for employees, we launch U-turn for both employees and family members, and really it's to drive utilization of the platform so people can get the help they need. We're also, we'll go in and do webinars, and we're very, this is a really interesting point, we're very mindful of the way we do that. We are not going to go into your organization and do a webinar on who's drinking too much or having uh, drug issues. Because guess how many people will show up at that webinar? Probably one to two at the very most. But if we do a webinar on who works really hard, is stressed and wants to learn positive psychology, we drive a lot of people into that webinar and then through that, get them to U-turn, get them to peer support if they need it and start them on this journey. It's just framing this up in a different manner uh, than going right to someone and saying, you're an alcoholic, you're an addict, you need help. Next one asks, can this be a community-based program? And then 
within the family? Is it done via telehealth or in person? Yeah, so the entire program is a virtual program. Um, for full disclosure, this program started, the Heritage Cares program started about nine years ago. Um, a gentleman named Rich Jones, who's a master level therapist, he's our chief clinical officer. He was the founding CEO of an organization called Faces and Voices of Recovery in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, and he raised a bunch of money and that allowed him to really create this assertive community engagement model where the peer is responsible for the individual. And in the beginning, it was all face-to-face -face interaction. And over time, the enrollees requested doing it virtual. They got better engagement that way. They didn't want to drive across town. It took the stigma away from walking into a nonprofit that dealt with drug and alcohol issues. And so it is switched to a virtual program um, and that's the way it's rolled out. And Kevin, I'm sorry, what was the first part of that question? It was about the, let's see, can it be a community-based program? Yeah, so part of, I want to make it very clear about this entire model with RCI and with National Safety Council. This is not a clinical program. We are not doing clinical work. However, we connect to the clinical work. So we will connect to a counselor. We will connect to a psychiatrist. The difference is we don't just give them the names of three counselors and have them go do the work. We stay with them through that process. We never leave the individual or the family. And so a lot of times, yes, we work with community organizations. There are times that we'll get an employee that says, I don't wanna go through my health plan. I don't want to go anywhere close to anything that has to do with my employer because I'm scared. I'm scared of the stigma. I'm scared people will get out. And so we do um, completely intertwine within the community, whether that's AA meetings, whether it's a nonprofit organization that we can work with. So yes, it can absolutely 100% be intertwined with uh, community involvement. This next one is directed uh, to Jenny and, and asks her, what is your opinion on management directed EAP? Uh, this would be the ability to have management formally ask the employee to call and get engaged with EAP services. I think what's important is creating a culture of being able to have those discussions within an organization. So um, not necessarily it being mandated, but having a supervisor employee situation where they can have conversations, they can check in with each other um, to watch for signs, you know, as Hamilton had spelled out at the beginning of the webinar, there are certain signs and symptoms that an, a supervisor may notice that an employee has. And if you just have conversations regularly, you can be educating your employee on those resources that are available within an EAP. Um, it is, it is far more important that, it, as, and as Hamilton was mentioning, when people are ready that they can get the support that they need um, and not necessarily be directed to get to a certain point and, and go there. So if, if the employees are educated and actually know what resources are available, that's where the important piece is because it needs to be a decision that they make. Getting, getting back to, to the program, um, it asks, is the peer support provided by the company and then how can the program integrate into a current employer's strategy? Uh, so the answer to the question is yes, peer support is provided by Heritage Cares. We have a team of peers um, and we have two groups. We have individual peers. These are individuals with lived experience that have lived through this journey that are trained in our model. Um, we also have family peers. And what's really cool about this is it's almost like a dual peer. So if we have a veteran that works for your company, what we do is, is pair them up with a veteran that has lived through this. Um, we're doing some work with the International Union of Operating Engineers. These are the crane operators. We're not gonna pair them up with someone like me. We're gonna pair them up with someone of like mind, like job, things of that nature that's lived through this. So the peers are provided by us. And yes, we do integrate within the employer. So what we try to do is find out what benefits they use, if they have a new solution, like a mental health solution, like Talkspace or Lyra or something like there. What we do is make more people use, not makes not the right word. We encourage more people to use those tools. We encourage more people to use the clinical tools that the EAP provides or use the psychiatrist in the network and things of that nature. Really, when you think about Heritage Cares, um, and this is, this is really important, what we know is, is if 
most people want to get better. And if they try to get better and they engage in some type of treatment, no matter what it is, and they stay engaged with that treatment, most individuals get better. And there was a big study done out of Harvard on this recently. So if you try to get better, if you get engaged and you stay engaged, most people get better. But what we've done for so many years is we've left it up to the individual. We believe that the peer should help them stay engaged. And we've actually done a clinical trial to prove that out. And so, um, yes, we totally integrate with whatever solutions the employer already has. Well, excellent. Um, fortunately today, everyone, we have run out of time. Sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Once again, we hope that you take the time to fill out the forthcoming evaluation survey and give us your feedback. With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Hamilton Baden, Jenny Burke, David Whitesock, everyone at Heritage Health Solutions, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.